It's good to be with one another uh, this morning and to turn then to John chapter 3. We've been in John 3 the last few weeks and we come to uh, the end of the chapter. Uh, You may remember that as we looked at the story of Nicodemus, there's a uh, account of what happens with Nicodemus and then there is a commentary that comes from the Apostle John who is writing and we see a little bit of the same pattern here as uh, we'll see a story about John the Baptist and then some commentary uh, on that. Uh, picking up in verse 31. And uh, John the Apostle here is returning to uh, John the Baptist. Uh, He'd been introduced to us in chapter 1 where he was introducing uh, the Christ. And we see that uh, Jesus had then been unfolded in uh, the sense of his story being told, the ministry of his uh, coming and his uh, far exceeding everything uh, that had been presented uh, in Judaism up to this point. He's the, the, the new wine that has come. He is uh, greater than the temple that had been given. He's the one who's, who's bringing a new birth, and he's uh, bringing life to his people. And so uh, we, we come back to uh, this account then of John the Baptist, who is, in a sense, wrapping up his ministry here. And you'll see that as we come uh, to the end of verse 29, as uh, John, in reflecting on the fact that Jesus has come, says that his joy is complete and that Jesus has to increase, and that he needs to decrease. So uh, listen to these words as uh, we read them, Uh, but let's pray before we read. Lord, when we come to your word, we come to a word before which we must always decrease, and we pray that you would always be increasing in our eyes. Lord, we pray that you'd humble us as we read, and as we contemplate uh, these your words in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word, John 3, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one uh, who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Thus ends this reading. God's holy word, which we pray he would write on our hearts today and forever. I have a friend who is a particularly large human being. He stands about 
six feet nine inches tall and perhaps 275 pounds. He's uh, one of those few friends in my life where I sort of genuinely fear getting too close because I think he has a center of gravity that draws other things into its orbit. And I have this sense uh, just inherently that I might even lose my identity if I get too close to him, just sort of be, be sucked into his mass. And uh, he, he played baseball in high school for a very small school, and the school was so small that they didn't have a football team, and he just enjoyed playing baseball, and he chose to go to a Christian college, and uh, when he enrolled in that college, he was planning to play ball there as well, and uh, the very first week of class began, and the football coach all of a sudden noticed there was a very large piece of humanity walking around the campus, six foot nine, 275 pounds, and he marched into the admissions department, and he pounded the table, and he said, how is it that we have a student like this on campus, and I don't know about him? And the coach very quickly became acquainted with him, brought him in, and uh, immediately stacked him up against others who had been waiting for three years to play on the offensive line behind others. And he stepped into place and simply pushed them out of the way. And you gather what was going on here. Those others that had been waiting their turn in line began to realize that because this young man had arrived, he must increase in his prominence on the offensive line and they must decrease. And maybe some of you have had this experience too. You were in band and you thought you were going to be uh, in the first chair. Uh, maybe you were in theater and you were, you were ready to go and you'd waited your turn and someone came in with far greater talent or ability than you had. Maybe you've experienced the same thing in the workplace where uh, all of a sudden there's a rising star and you realize because of the capacity and the, the being of that person that you are simply going to have to be humbled into some sort of supporting role. Well, this is what we have with Jesus arriving on the scene only in a far greater way. Here we have John, the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets who's been preaching and he, there are followers who have been gathered to him. And yet when the Lord Jesus has come upon the scene, all John can say is, he must increase. And I must decrease. And that same battle is being played out in the heart of every human being who's ever walked the face of the earth since then. You come face to face with Jesus Christ as he is presented in the gospel and you understand who he is and why he has come. And we need to understand who we are in relation to him and what it is that needs to happen. He must increase. But I must decrease. There is no other option. How is it that we, as we come face to face with Christ, really take that line to heart ourselves and see it lived out? Well, the Lord gives us this account of, the, uh, of John the Baptist as he's ministering, in one sense, at the peak of the Old Testament in all of its greatness. And there's a turning point in human history that is also reflected experientially for us. And as we see verses 22 through 30 unfolding, we see uh, the example of what this looks like. And then verses 31 through 36 give us more of the, the teaching of what all of this means. And what we want to do here today is to kind of try to stitch these together. So we'll see how something is exemplified that shows us how it is that the Lord himself must increase in 
on, on world history and in our lives. And then we, we see it worked out in the teaching uh, that John the Apostle gives in verses 31 and following. So we want to uh, look at, at four different ways in which we come to a greater understanding of how it is that he must increase and we must decrease. And the first of these is that you must acknowledge that Jesus is from above and is above all. And you see this in verses 22 through 27 by example, as Jesus comes onto the scene and John acknowledges this. And then we'll see it in teaching, particularly in verse 31. So notice that the history here and the story as it unfolds. Jesus and his disciples, they went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them. And Jesus is getting acquainted with his uh, disciples, his apostles, those who are being gathered to him. And there's, there are baptisms that are going on. We see down in chapter 4, verse 2, it's not actually Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples were. And this was, again, a baptism of repentance. John was continuing to baptize as well. His ministry wasn't quite complete, but uh, he was teaching this baptism of repentance that was needed in order to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this happened, as is noted in verse 24, children, because John hadn't yet been put in prison. So this is one of the things you can draw, is uh, you can draw this picture of John being put in prison. But what's unfolding for us in the story is just before that happens. John would be put in prison, and then he would be beheaded by King Herod. But Jesus would go on. And what we're seeing here is the, the rise of Jesus to prominence. And it unfolds in an even more personal way here in verse 25. There's a discussion that arises between some of John's disciples and a single Jew who is debating some part of the, the laws of purification, hand washing and these kinds of things. We don't know what it was, but you can sort of imagine how this must have played out, right? Here's one uh, smart elk who comes along and he wants to raise a, a bone of contention with some of John's disciples about purification. He's, he's asking some uh, perhaps seemingly obscure theological question. And all of this uh, gives rise to people uh, really beginning to look more at Jesus. They, they realize that purification can't be all that's going on here, but there's in the midst of this discussion an awareness that somehow Jesus is greater than all of these things. And this starts to rub some of John's disciples the wrong way. And so you see in verse 26 here that all of this leads them coming to John and they say, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Now, it's, it's pretty obvious here that these folks are offended. They're going, look, there's, a, there's another church down the street, as it were, that's becoming more popular. There's another speaker who's drawing more attention. Isn't this bothering you, John? And John says here as clearly as he can in verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Scholars are a little bit divided here on exactly what this means, but whatever the exact meaning, it all funnels in the same direction. Either John is saying here, the privilege that I have of being a forerunner is given me from heaven. That's all I am and that's all I have and that's what I'm content to do is simply to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps he's acknowledging here that 
Jesus is receiving these accolades because people are actually hearing John's voice and they are going to the Lord Jesus. They've received revelation from heaven. And so they are moving on to the Lord Jesus Christ. But whichever it means, the meaning is obvious in the big picture. Jesus has arrived on the scene and he must increase. And then John the apostle teaches this in verse 31. Look there, if you will. He says, he who comes from above is above all. And the apostles would say later in the book of Acts, speaking of the Lord Jesus, he is Lord of all. This is the only rational conclusion when Jesus comes on the scene is that he is from above. That is, he is God himself. He is the word incarnate as we saw in chapter one. And he is above all. So what would we expect? What would we expect from John's preaching? Well, we would expect that Jesus would be exalted. And this is precisely what was happening. John uh, notes here in verse 31 that he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and he speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. And if we understand who Jesus is, there's no other conclusion than that he must be exalted in the hearts of his people. He alone is Lord. And simply because of who he is, God manifest in the flesh, we must humble ourselves and bow before him. But we see, secondly, that no one receives his testimony. That's the word that's, that's, that's what's taught us here in verse 32 by the apostle John. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard speaking of Jesus, yet no one receives his testimony. And where do we see this uh, worked out? Well, we see it worked out in, in the historical example here again in verses 25 and 26. John's disciples were not wanting to acknowledge Jesus for who he really was and John the Apostle uh, teaches this ever so clearly there in verse 32. People aren't receiving the testimony that's given. So we have to acknowledge not only that Jesus has come from God, but if we're going to acknowledge that he must increase and that we must decrease, we also have to acknowledge that left to ourselves in the flesh, we don't want to acknowledge who Jesus is. We don't want to accept his testimony. We actually want to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And so this was the temptation that John's disciples faced. Certainly the Jewish leaders faced this temptation and it's temptation that we face as well. We look at Jesus and we become jealous of him because we recognize that he is the voice come from heaven. He is the truth that is revealed. And what does he teach us about ourselves? Well, he teaches us not only that we're sinners, but by example, as we look at him and his holiness, we're convicted by our own sin, our own finite limitations, and we're humbled before him. So Jesus appears on the scene and it, it, It's not that all people are drawn to him. Many, most, or as is put here, then no one is going to receive his testimony unless it is God who reveals himself to these people. In other words, it's not only true that we need to recognize that we struggle in our own heart of hearts with acknowledging who Jesus is. It also means that when we do acknowledge who he is, we need to understand we're not going to be very popular. 
because others will not see the same glorious thing about him that we see. But note here that if you reject who Jesus is, if you remain in your fleshly, earthly mind, you are not simply rejecting an idea. But I want you to look again at verse 32. You see, no one receives his testimony. You are failing to receive a person, not simply a word that is spoken. You are rejecting a right relationship with the living God himself. So we're not just talking about abstract ideas here. We're talking about the living, breathing Lord Jesus Christ who is alive from the dead today, who has gone to the cross for our salvation and ever lives now to make intercession for his people. Do not reject the testimony that he gives you even here today. So you have to first acknowledge who Jesus is, that he is from above, that he is above all. And you need to acknowledge that in your heart of hearts, you won't receive his testimony apart from his grace. Thirdly, then you you need to see that if if he's going to increase and you're going to decrease, you need to receive his testimony. Again, in terms of the teaching here, you see it in verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And in the historical example, the story that's unfolded for us here, who is it that gives that kind of testimony? Well, it's John the Baptist. And he does it with joy and delight. You look back at verse 27. In verse 27, John answers, a person can't receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John wasn't jealous. He was pleased to be able to say, I'm not the Christ. I'm just pointing to him. I'm just the forerunner. But he was delighted to be the forerunner and to be able to speak about his own Savior in this kind of way. John's whole purpose in coming was to reveal his earthly cousin who was his heavenly Savior. And so he was happy to do this. And he gives us this beautiful illustration in verse 29. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He's saying here in his role as prophet, he doesn't have the privilege of taking the bride to be his very own. He's just telling about the bridegroom who is coming. And uh, in uh, various ancient laws uh, in the Near East, there was one person who absolutely could never marry the bride. And in some cultures, uh, this person was never allowed to marry the bride, even if the bridegroom died. And that was the bridegroom's friend or the best man. Uh, He was simply there to support and to encourage and to raise up the bridegroom. And this is just common sense in one way, isn't it? We're looking forward to a couple of weddings. And uh, if you see in the wedding ceremony, the time turn for the vows to be made one to another, and uh, you see the bride standing on one side of the pastor, and you see the groom on the other side, and uh, he begins to say, repeat after me, bride, and, and make your vows to your bridegroom, 
that all of a sudden she sort of pushes the, the bridegroom away and begins to look at the best man who is now all of a sudden radiant and beaming and smiling. What do you think should happen at this particular moment in the ceremony? Everyone would be aghast and hopefully whoever is presiding over the ceremony would have enough sense to say, we're ending it all right here. Something is deeply wrong and we're, we're all going to dismiss at this particular juncture because this is not some small faux pas. This is a great offense to the bridegroom himself. And so John says it would be the, the height of offense against the Lord Jesus Christ if John were to claim these disciples as his own. He is only serving to point people faithfully to the bridegroom in all of his glory and his splendor and his awe. And this is what it means for us to be able to say in our own hearts and our own lives on a daily basis, he must increase, but I must decrease. When we look at the Lord Jesus, we recognize that whatever our circumstances in life, we will only find the kind of joy that will be complete like it was here for the apostle or for, for John the Baptist if we're looking to him. Some of you come today with great grief on your heart because you have lost loved ones. It is in this kind of moment that Jesus must increase and that we must decrease. And as he increases, we see that he is the one who is the resurrection and the life. You may be here today and you're going through difficulties in the workplace. Or, or maybe you're even experiencing successes in your workplace. And what needs to happen in your heart and mind is if you are going to move forward with success and true service, Whatever your circumstance there, Jesus has to be increasing so that you see that what, whatever those circumstances are, you're looking to him and you're looking for him to be exalted. The same thing is true in our witness to our unbelieving friends. We don't want them to look at us and to take their joy and delight in somehow drawing nearer to us. But Jesus must increase in terms of the way we speak of him and testify of him. People ought to know that our joy is complete because we know him. When we think about uh, our, our relationships as husband and wife or praying for and longing for the Lord to bring those kinds of relationships of marriage into our lives, we need to understand we'll never find our joy our, or our fulfillment ultimately in finding that other person but only insofar as such a relationship would show the world in a greater and fuller way that Jesus is the great bridegroom of his church. As you go into, the, into your schools, children, some of you have started even now. Others of you are getting ready to start. University students are getting ready to return again. It is in uh, those places of learning and the relationships that you develop and the friendships that are formed. You will only find a fullness of joy and a sense of completion in your life if Jesus is increasing and you are decreasing. And that only happens if you speak of him and you think of him the way in which John the Baptist spoke and thought of the Lord Jesus Christ. John was able to say, because of Jesus being exalted, that his joy was now complete. 
And we see this being taught for us then in verses 33 and following. God says, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And this participle in verse 33 receives. Uh, It's in the Greek language, what we call the aorist. That means it's a kind of a punctiliar sense. It's once at one particular point in time. We're not talking about receiving in an ongoing kind of way, but there's a decisiveness here of looking at who Jesus is and having it settled in one's own heart that we will, in fact, receive his testimony. And what God says you are to do here and what you have the opportunity to do is you receive his testimony. What are you doing? You are setting your seal to this, that God is true. Not merely the sense here that God is truthful or that he says lots of true things. Those are certainly true. But you are testifying to what John will later testify to in John chapter 4, 14, verse 6. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. See, we live this way and we testify to the fact that Jesus is ultimate truth himself. Everything in life is settled when we see life through the lens of the truth of the Lord Jesus. It guides everything that we do. And notice the language here is this idea that you get to set your seal to this truth. Now, we are called in this passage to decrease. John says, I must decrease. And we have to have that mindset. But I want you to notice embedded in this the profound sense of dignity that your God gives you by stating that you have a seal. Because seals in the ancient world were used by who? They were used by kings. They were used by nobility. And a seal might be a ring that had an insignia on it that would be pressed into hot wax to close an envelope. We still see it used that way sometimes for wedding invitations and and other uh, formal kinds of documents. But that seal would be impressed into that wax, which uh, would melt then into the paper, indicating that that was an authentic document or that that uh, thing or that item was possessed or owned by the king. And that seal was often not even words. It was simply a picture so that it would help even the illiterate know and understand that that thing was certified by the king or owned by the king as his very own possession. And so what does God tell you here? There is a sense in which you have a seal. You have been made in the image of God. You are made to receive Jesus. You are made to testify to who he is. And he has given you this seal. And what he calls you to do today is to take that seal by faith. To press in and to testify that God is true. You have this privilege. You have this opportunity. You have this obligation. The only way it happens is if in your heart of hearts you receive Jesus and his testimony 
as the Apostle John did. And you say, not only is he true in an intellectual sense, but that you understand that he is the ultimate sum of truth and that you have recognized him as the one who has come into the world to bring life and to bring life to you through his work upon the cross and in his glorious resurrection. Won't you, dear friend, today, in your heart and with your lips, set your seal to this, that God is true, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And not only today, but every day, with every statement you make, with every truth you hold dear, and even with everything that you do, as you obey the Lord Jesus Christ, you are setting your seal to this, that God is true. And, and why is it that you're able to do this? Why is it that as you profess him and set your seal to him, uh, these things uh, become visible to the world? We see more of the reason for this in verse 34 and following. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. And it seems in context here that what John is speaking of is that God the Father has given God the Son his spirit without measure. Jesus has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. John uh, the Baptist had seen Jesus uh, with the spirit descending upon him as a dove, testified to us in chapter 1. And now what has happened? Well, the fullness of the promises of the Old Testament have come to pass that we read about in Isaiah chapter 11, that we read about in places like Isaiah chapter 42, or that we read about in uh, uh, Isaiah chapter 61, that the Spirit of God has come upon the servant of God so that he might bring to pass all that has been promised. And, and where does all of this flow from? Why is it that we can set our testimony, uh, our seal to this? It is because the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Why do we testify to, to the truth of who Jesus is? It's because we look and we see that the Father has put the Spirit upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that when God has brought salvation, he's brought it because this love flows from the very heart of the triune God himself. All of these promises that have been made that are going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, they all come to pass because the Father loves the Son and has given him his Holy Spirit. And that's why we can set our seal to this great reality that God is true and he is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, as we walk through this life, our heart on a daily basis, because we understand who the triune God is and what he's done, our mentality must be with John the Baptist to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. And you see something of a parallel here between verses 30 that drive that point home for us here in conclusion and verse 36, where John the Apostle fleshes this out even more. He says, you want to do this? You want to say he must increase, but I must decrease? What do we need to do? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Here's a wonderful summary of the whole chapter, really. That there are two ways to go, two ways to live, two ways to think, two ways to believe. 
Either he will increase through your profession of faith and you will experience life in him and he will be magnified or you will decrease by humbling yourself before him, which would be parallel to believing in him, or you won't and you will still decrease anyway because the wrath of God abides on you, remains upon you. You are all decreasing, whether you like it or not. Appreciate the way Sandy Wilson puts it. He says, you want to understand whether you're decreasing or not? Just look in the mirror. You got wrinkles. You got hair that's turning gray. Your body is changing. You ain't what you used to be. Now, maybe some of you who are like not quite 18 yet, your, your body actually is increasing. But let me tell you, you're doomed to this. You'll hit about 25 years old and all of a sudden realize your clothes fit tighter than they used to because all of a sudden your metabolism has changed and there's nothing that you can do about it. Then you hit about 28 years old and you start waking up in the morning a whole lot more sore than you ever used to be. And, And we can go on from there. You will find that you are decreasing and you are without hope if life and eternal life is all about you and your fitness. This hit home for me when I was about 16, 17, 18 years old, and I went with our church into uh, sing Christmas carols at a local nursing home, and this was in the early 1990s, and uh, since Veterans Day had passed not that long before on the bulletin board, they still had pictures of young men who had served in World War I, and they were in uniform for their military photos, sharp-looking young men full of vigor and life, going to fight for their country. And I looked at those pictures, and all of a sudden, it dawned on me. These were the same people that I had just been singing to, who were curled up in their beds, half-naked, mere skin and bones. In some cases, only days or perhaps even hours from likely death final demise. And I look at those pictures on the wall and realized they looked a whole lot like me. And I could fast forward in my mind 70 years in that moment to see what I might look like in a nursing home bed when I was 90 years old. I am decreasing. You are decreasing whether you like it or not. But Jesus is increasing. His fame and his stature, his testimony on the face of the earth is increasing every time the world spins around. Every week as we go through a new Lord's Day and God's word is being proclaimed the world over, people are being baptized They are humbling themselves before the living God. They are acknowledging, they are setting their seal to this, that Jesus Christ is true. And their lives and your lives are being transformed more and more and more. So you might as well get on board with it, dear friends. You might as well, since this is the reality that you will face, agree with your Lord and magnify him today. 
set your seal to the fact that he is true by believing in the son and experiencing life. If you don't, you'll live a life of disobedience and you will experience the wrath of God that will remain upon you. Eternal separation from the living God where you will not only experience decrease in this life, but you will be smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller through all eternity as you suffer under the wrath of God. But you don't have to end up there. Believe the Son today. Set your seal to this, that he is true. And say with the apostle, or say with John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Lord, you must increase, and we must decrease. So Lord, we would humble ourselves here before you, like John. And we would say, that we are nothing other than those whom you have created for your service, who have in our flesh and in our nature rebelled against you. And yet, Lord, we are those who have been reached by you in the person of Jesus Christ, who has come so that we might have life. And so, Lord, we would today receive the Lord Jesus. We would believe that he is true. We would set our seal to this great reality. And we pray that you would be magnified and that you would increase in our lives today, this week, and for all of eternity, even as we humble ourselves before you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.